Good morning and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. Last week, the Jewish world read of the revelation, the experience at Mount Sinai in which the eternal God of the Jewish people presents the nation leaving Egypt with the opportunity to affirm themselves as God's people. The Ten Commandments are offered to the Jewish people, and they respond to the words, Na'asev nishma, we will do and we will hearken. This week, following upon that very, very impressive experience, the revelation, we come to a parasha entitled Mishpatim, a parasha that seems to be filled with uh, very uh, mundane laws. The Ten Commandments, often called in Hebrew, Aserata broke the Ten Words, are powerful ethical statements and powerful religious obligations. Here, the Torah portion goes to great length to identify a, quite a litany of mundane laws that will uh, be very different than the overarching ethical precepts and theological demands of the Aserata de Brot. Let me offer you a few selections. When you have a Hebrew servant, he shall serve six years and in the seventh be free. Anyone who murders intentionally shall be put to death. If the murder occurs without intention, there is a place for this murderer to flee. Honor your parents and do not strike them. If two men fight and a pregnant woman is hit and miscarries, the husband shall find the one responsible. But if the pregnant woman dies, then you must compensate a life for a life, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, Burn for burns, wound for wound, bruise for bruise, lex teleconus. Um, whenever one strikes a slave's eye or tooth, the slave shall be free. When anyone opens a pit or leaves one uncovered and an animal falls into it, the person leaving the pit uncovered is responsible for the harm done to the animal. He must make fair payment for the loss that may keep the dead animal. Then goes on to uh, list a totally different type of uh, mundane everyday laws. You shall not tolerate a sorceress. Whoever sacrifices to a god other than God alone shall be utterly destroyed. You shall not oppress nor do any wrongs to strangers, for you are strangers in the land of Egypt. If you lend money to my people, especially the poor, do not act as a creditor nor take interest. Return to your neighbor what it is you borrow before the sun sets. After this long list of laws, the Torah portion concludes in the following way. Three times a year you shall have a feast for me. The feast of unleavened bread, which we know is Passover, to remember how God delivered you from Egypt out of the house of bondage. The feast of harvest, Sukkot, to honor me with the first and choicest of fruits, 
and the feast of ingathering, Shavuot, at the end of the liturgical year when you reap the results of your work. Then it says, you shall not boil a kid in its mother's milk, which serves as the basis for the elaborate rules of kosher. God then says, I am sending an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have made ready. If that which is mine is heeded, I will be an enemy to your enemies and a foe to your foes. When my angel brings you in contact with other people, you shall not bow down to their gods in worship nor follow their practices, but you shall tear down their gods. You shall serve the Lord your God, and God will bless your bread and water, and there shall be health and healing in the land. Early in the morning, Moses set up an altar at the foot of the mountain with 12 pillars for the 12 tribes of Israel. He made an animal offering to the Lord, saying aloud, This blood seals the covenant which God makes now with you, the people of Israel. God then says to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain. I will give you the tablets of stone with my commandments so that you can teach them. The glory of God rests upon Mount Sinai, and the appearance of God was like a consuming fire at the top of the mountain before the eyes of the sons of Israel. Moses entered into the midst of the cloud and ascended the mountain. And Moses remained upon the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. It's as if the revelation began last week is bracketed with another type of revelation. And in between is the litany of Mishpatim laws. It is a Torah portion that runs from Exodus 21.1 to Exodus 24.18. With me this morning... To again uh, speak about the Torah portion is Rabbi Mark Levin of Kansas in the United States. Rabbi Levin is a noted commentator on the Bible, having taught for over 40 years in his home congregation. He's written and he continues to teach a shiur, a lesson, every Shabbat. It's my pleasure now to welcome Rabbi Levin. Um, this morning, be here. Thank you. Oh, it's a pleasure to have you uh, back again. Um, this week's parasha, as I've indicated to our listeners, is Mishpatim, but it's also a special Shabbat. It's called Shabbat Shekalim, and it occurs on the Shabbat prior to the Hebrew month of Adar. So I thought we might spend a moment talking about uh, Shabbat Shekalim. Um, what is Shabbat Shekalim? Well, uh, in the book of Exodus, chapter 30, uh, verses, uh, let's see, 11 to 16, you get um, a commandment to support the daily sacrificial system. There was um, a morning sacrifice and, and, and an afternoon sacrifice on behalf of all of the people. This is besides the other sacrifices like guilt sacrifices or voluntary sacrifices uh, or holiday sacrifices. These uh, are simply the daily sac- animal sacrifice, which uh, are a fulfillment of the covenant between God and the Jewish people or the Israelites. And a half shekel was to be collected uh, from every adult, 20 and up, uh, in order to support that sacrificial system, which, if you think about it, by contributing your half shekel, uh, and everyone contributes the same amount, 
everyone has equal representation in supporting the activity, meaning sacrifices, that connected the Jewish people to God. So it's a very, in that sense, democratic uh, participation uh, in the activity uh, through the temple, which was the center of the Jewish people in those days, and uh, was the basis for the breach for the covenant between God and the Jewish people. Now, you mentioned an interesting dynamic, and that is um, it's a tax upon the people of Israel. And the text says in Exodus 30, um, the rich are not to give more than a half shekel, and the poor are not to give less than a than you when you make the offering. Um, it, by today's world, we would think of that as unfair, that why shouldn't the rich pay more as they do in their income tax based on um, their total uh, income for the year and the poor pay less. But in this case, the Torah seems to be saying uh, that before God, all are equal. And it sounds as if it might be more of a burden for those who are declared uh, by the text poor than for those who are declared by the text rich. Agreed, except for I believe uh, that there's wisdom in this, which is to say, my neighbor, who makes 40 times what I make, cannot say, you know, I have a greater share in the covenant than you do because I've paid 20 times or 100 times or whatever what you've paid uh, for the uh, uh, to support the sacrificial system, which maintains the covenant. So, for instance, um, in Jewish texts, uh, there's a text called Teah, which is the corners of the field, and we are commanded to, to give tzedakah, charity, from the corners of the field, and nowhere in the Bible does it say what the measure of a corner of the field is. So there's a place, that is a commandment, after all, to give tzedakah, to give righteousness, to give charity, support the poor, and there, those who have more can give more, and those who have less, they give less, and, and they all have equal status, but after all, uh, to, to those that have greater uh, uh, income, they have the opportunity for greater beneficence, but not in this covenantal relationship. So, assuming that during Temple times, each person offered the half shekel, and the text is very clear, it's the half shekel of the sanctuary. So right. it's that which is particular for, a, um, um, for the usage of the sanctuary, not just anything. Um, why do we remember that with a yearly Shabbat? Uh, focused on a chapter in the Torah that is somewhere around 10 chapters later than the chapter that we're reading as the weekly offering. Sure. So the uh, system of Torah readings, the weekly system of Torah readings, historically probably originated with these special readings uh, originating first. So, for instance, there's a special reading for the Shabbat prior to Passover. There's a special reading for the first and last days of Passover. There's a special reading for all of the holidays, the holy days. And, and probably those textual readings uh, originated historically before the uh, Torah was divided up into 54 parashiot, uh, weekly portions. 
So you have these special commemorations which bring into Jewish life the textual remembrance, the uh, holiness of a text uh, that connects us, uh, connects us in the reading to God. So there are four special uh, readings, uh, each of the four Shabbatot prior to, to or, or four special Shabbatot prior to Pesach. So there's, so there's this one, which precedes the month of Adar, which is the uh, 12th month of the year, the last, the last of the month, and this is when the tax was to be given. There's one called Para, uh, which is <clears throat> the red heifer, a commemoration of the red heifer, by which people purified themselves prior to the, uh, the holiday of Pesach. Uh, there's uh, the uh, Shabbat prior to Pesach itself, and, and at the moment I am presenting the fourth one. How about that? Um, Shabbat Zachor. Shabbat Zachor, the remembrance Shabbat. Thank you very much. Which, which is the Shabbat prior to the reading of the Megillah uh, on the holiday of Purim. So uh, each of these has a special meaning, and, and those meanings are liturgically included uh, in the prayer service so that we remember these events. But notice, for instance, that Catholicism maintains the sacrificial system. They have a priest. Um, they have an altar. They, they have a sacrifice. Uh, in, in the form of uh, the Eucharist, uh, which in Catholicism is a real sacrifice through the mystery of the Eucharist. In Judaism, we have remembrances of the sacrificial system, but we do not any longer maintain since the destruction of the Second Temple the actual sacrificial system. And, and nor, do, nor does Judaism have um, representations of those sacrifices. So even Correct. if even if one were to um, um, modify the understanding um, of the sacraments that exist in Catholicism as Protestantism does, and still have uh, com- communion, but not believe that it's actually the host, the body of Christ, um, Judaism has nothing like that. Um, we don't. Even, we have remembrances and we have reminders, but we haven't m- remained true to the uh, actuality of the temple sacrifice um, in a liturgical manner. Um, uh, a- absolutely correct. Let us remember a couple of things. Uh, one is the Book of Deuteronomy prohibits sacrifices any place but the Temple Mount in in Jerusalem. And so when, the, when the, the temple on the Temple Mount was destroyed, the sacrifices uh, come, come to an absolute end because the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy prohibits them. Interestingly, the Talmud, the basis of Jewish law, does say that if you read the sections in which the commandment for sacrifice uh, is given, for instance, Numbers chapter 29, when you read it, in other words, words rather right. than sacrificial actions, it is as if you have offered the sacrifice. Well, that would lead us into a very different discussion about the dynamic of intentionality, um, which I don't want to get into because it's um, not part of our parasha, but perhaps on another occasion we can talk about the Talmud's discussion of words and the intention of the spokesperson versus acts themselves. For this morning, I want us to return to our parasha and 
having looked at the various laws that exist within the parasha, um, we have an opportunity to discuss Exodus 23. And Exodus yeah. 23 uh, begins, for those who are following at home, uh, with an unbelievable statement of do not spread false reports, do not make, help a wicked man by being a malicious witness, do not follow the crowd in doing wrong when you give testimony in a lawsuit, do not pervert justice by siding with the crowd, and do not show favoritism to a poor man in his suit, uh, in his lawsuit, that is, not in the clothing that he wears. And then in verse 8, do not deny justice to your poor people in their lawsuits. Now, we've just experienced the Ten Commandments, which feel quite uh, different in intentionality and kind than these laws. How do you understand the connection between last week's parasha and the revelation and this week's uh, list of uh, what our uh, great teacher called social norms yes so the uh, I think the Bible is quite clear uh, that the Ten Commandments are uh, like a suzerainty treating that has been discovered in other places in the Middle East and so it opens up with uh, the commandment that says uh, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. So as in a suzerainty treaty, it says, here's what I have done for you. And then there's the exclusive clause. It says, you shall have no other gods except for me, and you shall not bow down to them, and you shall not make any idols. And, and then it has uh, uh, apodictic exhortations to say, here is the nature of this covenant. Here is the nature of this agreement. Uh, between us, uh, between your suzerain, who is God, who has done the most important thing for you, I believe last time we spoke about the rude experience of the Jewish people being the Exodus, and so uh, here's what I have done for you, and now uh, here are the general outlines of these rules, but we, we can't just stop with apodictic laws, which, which give you a general sense. We need, in fact, case law, casuistic law, and, and so that's what we have following the Ten Commandments. And so chapter 23 is a great example. And in the part that you pointed out, but you could go through the rest of the parasha and find many more things like this, and we have a, we have a tremendous difference between the gods of the Middle East uh, prior to, to Israel and, and Israel's theology, which is to say, as in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6, Justice, justice shall you pursue. This is a God of justice. And, and the sine qua non of the relationship between God and, and God's people is that God is a just God who demands justice. The other part that is, that, that is very significant in differing um, from the religions of the Middle East, which gives one the impression here that this is, in fact, a real revelation, is that the Jewish people are included. In this, in this covenant, which is to say, it's not a matter of, God, of, the, of some God saying, you know, you guys are a pain, uh, we don't want you around, uh, we'll just order you to do what you need to do, and then stay out of our way. No, God's creation requires justice. This is a God of justice, 
and it is for it is the uh, responsibility of the people to complete the covenant by bringing God's justice into the world. So that the covenant involves God and the people. God cannot do it by God's self. So there are a couple of thoughts that come to mind. One is, of course, that the verses that we're addressing um, do not, by definition, speak to a hierarchy. They are all-inclusive, similar to the notion of the shekel, that rich and poor pay the same amount. Here, um, the laws are very clear. They are one law for all the people, not one for the rich and one for the poor, which becomes embedded in most democratic societies, that uh, justice uh, does not take into account one's economic status. Um, Of course, we could argue about whether that's a truism, but in theory, that is the basis for the law. But the other thought that emerges, which I'd like you to respond to, Rabbi Levin, is uh, one of the most popular polemics against Judaism is that um, the Jewish faith is a harsh, cold religion of laws, devoid of love and compassion. And we recognize that that challenge emerges in um, Matthew um, when he speaks about um, the eye for an eye and the tooth for tooth, which appears. And then Matthew says, but I say to you, Matthew speaking on behalf of Jesus, if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him, turn to him the other. Um, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. there, the, the essential word is love, um, and that polemic has been um, spoken against the Jewish people for nearly two millennium. Um, do you see these laws of justice as being harsh and cold laws of religion, or do you see them in some other context? An excellent question. So, and I want to use as uh, build on your example of Alex Taliotis. Uh, but, but first, let's deal with uh, chapter 23. And, and, and that is, you will notice in verse 9, it says, Do not oppress a stranger, for you know the feelings of the stranger, having yourselves been strangers in the land of Egypt. So the, the Torah in its entirety, if you take a look at uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6, which is, the, which is the center of Jewish worship, the Shema, it says, You shall love the Lord your God. So the relationship with God is a relationship of love. Now, what does that love consist of? That love consists, for one, yes, of justice, but not an unremitting justice that is cruel. Here you see in verse 9 what we just read, do not oppress the stranger, have mercy upon the stranger. Why? Because if you go inside of yourself, you know what it's like to be oppressed. So the Jewish people and Jewish law is, in its very foundation, uh, has this um, uh, sympathy and empathy with what it's like to suffer. And, and so it is certainly not a book of cold, harsh laws. The Bible is a series of books that say, look, we need justice, but we also need to, to identify with the poor and the downtrodden. If you look at Deuteronomy chapter 15, you're going to see that it says uh, that, there should, that there should not be any poor, because everyone should take care of everyone else. The rule of manna in Exodus chapter 16, 
which we just had recently in our reading. That says no one should take too much. No one should take more than they need. And if everyone takes what they need, then we will all live together in justice. But immediately after it says that, that you know, you should love the, the Lord your God, and says don't take too much, and there'll never be poor among you, it says, but when there is poor among you, because the Torah is a very realistic book, and realizes that, in fact, we will not, we will take too much, we will hoard, we will take more than we need, or more than our share, when that happens, you must treat the stranger, you must treat the poor, you must treat the widow with absolute fairness, and not only that, there needs to be a safety net. There needs to be a safety net in order to ensure that people get to live as human beings, because as, as Genesis uh, chapter 1 says, we are all of us created in the divine image. So, uh, yes, there is this sense, uh, um, like in Lex Talionis, in the eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, that is in the Bible, but Jewish law never, ever interpreted it in, as, a, as a literal um, in a, in a literal understanding. It has always been, and this is in the Talmud, and very early law, the payment of an eye. Why? Because, God forbid, you would try and exact the exact penalty. You might over-punish someone. Okay? You might hurt someone. You might give too much, uh, too much pain. So if, if I put out your eye, I have to pay you for that eye. Uh, I compensate you for what you have lost, but you are not in a position to, to hurt me. So you're reminding the listener this morning that the laws of the Torah were um, offered in a historical context um, of the ancient uh, Middle East, and that they had their genius in their contextual comparison to other uh, nations and other covenantal expressions, um, but with the destruction of the temple in 70 and the experience of the Jewish people, the Israelites, with the Western world uh, reflected in Greek and Roman tradition, the descendants of the priests, namely the rabbis, found a way to uh, interpret the laws of the Torah written in a previous uh, period of history in a way that allowed them to be uh, manifest more powerfully in a new generation. Of course, that's the story of all successful religions and all successful religious traditions. Um, I want to ask you uh, one other question before we have to wrap up this morning's show, and that is, um, when you speak about an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, and you've eloquently shared with the listeners the notion that this was never really implemented, um, how do we explain to listeners this dynamic of words in the Torah being uh, massaged so that they become actualized in different ways? Well, the, the Bible and specifically the Torah, was always interpreted. This notion of a fundamentalist, superficial, uh, literal meaning of the Bible is relatively new historically. If you look uh, at the history of Christianity and the history of Judaism, you will see that from the very earliest times of both uh, rabbinic Judaism and Christianity, 
the Bible has been interpreted by various different methods. So whether the Bible was taken as allegory, or the Bible was taken as uh, an implication and philosophical, however you took it, it was always interpreted uh, through the lens of different methodologies current at the time. At, on that simple- note, I think we're going to have to end our conversation for today. My guest has been Rabbi Mark Levin of Prairie Village, Kansas, author of Praying the Bible, making each prayer experience unique. I want to thank him for joining us this morning. You can hear a podcast of our show on iTunes or on the chri.ca website for Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten, wishing you shalom and a good day. Behold, oh,